Before we get started with today's episode, I want to tell y'all about my Sunday self-care routine. Um, As a graduate student, my life is crazy. I'm sure yours is as well. And so Sundays, I really make a point to stop and take a breath and just catch up on regular life. So typically, I'm going for a morning hike. In the afternoon, I'm FaceTiming with one of my best friends. And at night, I'm painting with my mom and my godmom. But every now and then, I got to stop and take care of like my full self because I have been letting COVID have me out here looking crazy. So last week I painted my nails, I did my hair, and I applied Huvine's Degunked Clay Mask. Degunked is Huvine's all-natural aloe-based purifying mask, and I like that it removes excess oil and refines my pores, which are my top two skin issues. You can get your own mask for a little self-care when you shop on Huvine's website at huvine.com. That's H-U-E-V-I-N-E.com. And thanks again to Huvine for sponsoring this episode. Hey y'all, it's Alante, and you're listening to Black and in Grad School, the podcast that helps women and people of color like you excel in this journey. If you're listening, I believe you are an aspiring or current scholar who wants to successfully navigate this process by sharing my experience while pursuing my PhD and interviewing other Black graduate students or early career professionals, it is my hope that you can glean encouragement, advice, and strategies that you can apply to your journey. Thanks for listening. What's up, y'all? I know you've been hearing my voice a little bit more than normal because there's a lot going on right now as far as it relates to the podcast. One, I want you all to know I'm getting ready for my proposal, and so my life is not normal. Also, this week's episode is a little bit old. However, I feel like it's right on time as we are in the throes of application season. So whether you're applying to graduate school, if you're applying for some funding, This conversation is really important and I thought it was such a cool concept and a cool conversation to be having with someone who studies the admissions process from a sociology perspective um, and being a black graduate student herself. I thought it was just super dope. With that said, I want you to know where this episode is coming from so you have a bit of context. In June, I, along with some amazing friends, organized a seven-day virtual event called Juneteenth Week. And this episode you're about to listen to is a conversation between myself and Aya Waller Bay, where we're talking about, like I said before, the admissions process and the way that Black students specifically share their trauma in order to uh, apply, you know, get admitted to graduate programs, undergrad fellowships, scholarships, what have you, and the way that it kind of exists within the bigger picture of higher education. And I think it's a really compelling conversation. And that's why I entitled this episode, No More Trauma, and how to write an empowering personal statement. But I want you to know that it is a bit of a meta conversation. So it might you might not leave with like super specific points on what to do next and how to write an empowered personal statement but I think it does give you this idea and this way of thinking about how the way that you share your story influences the way that diversity is viewed and all these other things it's a really cool conversation I just didn't want you to just jump in and be like what the hell am I listening to um but it is a great conversation. I really, really enjoyed this episode and I hope that you do as well. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to know how it might influence the way that you share your story as you are applying for, again, funding, how you're applying for graduate school, what have you. And know that this is the beginning of a mini series we're doing in the podcast. Like I said, it's application season. Let's talk about people who are going for master's to PhD, people who are going to graduate school for the first time, people who are applying for fellowships, what do those different things look like? So just know that's what you're going to be listening to for the next couple of weeks before we come on to the anniversary. With that said, I hope you enjoy this episode and I will talk to y'all next week. Okay. Hey y'all, it's Alante and I'm back with another episode of Black and in Grad School. And I'm excited today because we are recording live from Juneteenth week. It is a seven-day series of curated action-focused events put together by some amazing folks that I know, um, and I'm really happy that we are, that I was able to participate today um, in this really exciting conversation I'm going to be having with Aya 
Waller Bay. And I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Aya, and then we're gonna get into our conversation. So Aya Waller Bay is a proud Detroiter and first generation college student. She's currently a PhD student in sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, examining the identity narration of black students in college personal statements when applying to predominantly white institutions, particularly in affirmative action ban compliance states. Aya has been featured in op-eds for Huffington Post UK, University World News, The Hetchinger Report, the 2016 White House Summit for Advancing Post-Secondary Diversity and Inclusion, South by Southwest EDU, and really she is a powerhouse. Her leadership and research has also been highlighted in PBS and NBC, Cambridge, Washington Post, University World News, and she continues her commitment to access and inclusion through her work with national not-for-profits and in 2018 spoke with staffers on the Hill about advancing higher ed policy that serves historically underrepresented college students. So we're going to have a really amazing conversation. The title of this session is Bridging the Gap of Racial Equality, Representation, and Social Institutions. So Aya, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited for this conversation. Same. I think it's going to be really robust and it's really exciting. I think you might be one of the first Detroiters I've interviewed for Black and Grad School, which I'm like slick embarrassed about right now, saying it out really? better. Wow. Yeah, um, but That's I'm really happy, you know. <laughs> as, a, as a fellow Detroiter, got a, it's a bunch of us in, from Detroit that have, you know, they're getting our PhDs or have PhDs. So with that said, I wanna ask like how you picked sociology. How did you know that was um, the discipline that you were gonna kind of commit to for your career? Right. So thank you again for having me um, on the podcast. And sociology, again, was just not a discipline, not an area of expertise or scholarship that I was super familiar with before undergrad. And luckily, I was exposed to some very important sociological texts while um, transitioning from high school to, to undergrad. And then I was like, there are scholars, there are resources, there are research that examines my lived experience as a black person, as a black woman. This is what I want to study. And I think sociology as a discipline essentially gives you the, the training to be able to ask very important institutions about uh, questions about the very important kind of institutions that we're a part of. It helps us kind of understand why, how come, what then happens, what are the implications. So sociology really I stumbled upon it, frankly, and then, you know, I was like, this is what I need to, to learn in order to ask the questions that are important to communities and topics that are, you know, ex extremely important to, to Black people. So it was like, you know, I stumbled upon it, frankly, uh, but it has been a really important discipline for me. It has essentially shaped how I understand the world, how I understand social institutions. So I'm super happy that, you know, sociology will equip me to, to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to know, like, why the PhD? Because some would argue that the work you want to do and the impact you want to have can be done with a bachelor's degree or at the master's level. So what is it about the PhD specifically that has been appealing to you or the best fit for your career? It's interesting because some folks will argue that, but are those folks Black and Black women? Because mm -hmm. I think Black women, we definitely have to be exceptional we definitely have to have the highest degree attainment to occupy a lot of spaces, particularly in higher education and leadership. And as someone who aspires to not only be a faculty member, I also have some higher ed leadership kind of aspirations. Presidents of universities, provosts of universities have PhDs or JDs at least. So for me, it was it's critical to anything that I want to do to maintain, uh, to, to earn a PhD. You know, I'm not Bessie DeVos. I can't just be the Secretary of Education with a, with a bachelor's degree. Facts. And I think you bring up a lot of different points that a lot of grad students think about, like um, when we are people of color, when we're women, we have to have, you know, additional kind of checks, you know, like I don't, I, more than certification, of course, PhD is way more than that. But like to even get your foot in the door, these titles are necessary for you to be heard, um, even though it doesn't have anything to do with what you can what you can uh, produce because clearly um, there are people with PhDs who also don't have anything fruitful to offer. So um, I think that's really important to note it to note that like certain disciplines, certain 
careers require this level of uh, education. So I want to know about kind of more about your research, the work you do with social institutions, especially like this idea of personal statements and PWIs, because that's something I think a lot of Black folk struggle with is like bleeding out in their personal statements. That's what I kind of call it, um, of telling their, their sad stories. And so I'm sure I would love to just know, like from a sociologist perspective, you know, um, what are some of the phenomena? Yeah, so essentially my research stems from my own experience as a low-income Black student navigating the college admissions process. So like a lot of first-generation low-income students, particularly if you are marked as high achieving, you may be sought out from various nonprofits and organizations who are invested in your academic success. So it becomes a conversation about exposure to opportunities. So let me expose this young person from the inner city who is clearly gifted and high achieving to these various types of opportunities so they can then go on to college and become successful, right? So in my experience kind of working with and being a part of these organizations and writing my own statements, I realized that I was telling the most intimate and difficult details about my life story to demonstrate that I was worthy to be admitted. So I applied to college, you know, get in. I then kind of realized that I was retelling similar stories, mm -hmm. that I was almost tethered to that narrative that I shared as an 18-year-old student. So then I graduated from college and then I work as an admissions officer. So in my capacity as an admissions officer, I then see firsthand how the sausage is made and how students are not only writing these types of stories, but how universities and admissions officers are consuming these narratives. And how these narratives, and particularly the stories of black students and racially minoritized students, are deemed differently or read differently, right? So a struggle that, a repeated theme that I received across the board is, you know, students would talk about, you know, a parent got sick or they lost a football game or a championship, right? So you'll see some students narrate that, white students largely narrating about financial loss, bankruptcy, parents' divorce, how it made them feel. Then I would see black students, a lot of immigrant students talking about deportation, homelessness, abuse. I mean, very detailed, intimate, traumatic, even racial and um, sexual violence. And they will be narrating these stories to people they don't even know, right? So we don't know often the admissions officers. We just write our essays and hopefully we get in. So I began to realize that there's a pattern here. And I too felt victim to consuming these types of narratives. Because when a black student in particular told me, you know, I was homeless, but then I started this nonprofit, and then I helped my mama, I was like, we, this is it. Like, this is the person we need up in here. So I too, again, consumed those narratives. And if it came down to a, a black student who didn't share something like that, you know, maybe they talked about traveling abroad with their family on a family trip and a student who talked about being homeless or a very difficult subject, I would feel that the student who had the struggle was more deserving for the spot. Same grade, same test scores, and et cetera. So I began to wonder, what is it about this type of narration that, A, that students are doing? Like, who's telling them that's the most appropriate way to write a personal statement? Particularly if the statements are saying, tell us about your story. Why is that the particular story you think is important for admissions officers to know? And then secondly, why are universities so obsessed with these type of narratives? Because we will see it all the time on websites. You know, meet Aya. Aya grew up in inner city Detroit. You know, I'll be posing and happy that, oh, look, I'm telling my story. But again, what is that saying about representation, racial stereotypes, and these commitments to having black faces in these predominantly white spaces? So. That is really how, you know, my story and my interest in this particular research area came about. Yeah. I now want to know, like, so what is, <laughs> tell us all the answers, Aya. What, what, what have you found so far? Um, because that's something that I'm not a sociologist at all. I have zero, I took like one sociology class in undergrad. That was like over 10 years <laughs> ago. I really want to know, like, I've always thought about that too, right? Especially when you're in grad school. At this point, we've written a thousand personal statements, you know, applying for funding, applying for to grad school. And so I always kind of have veered away from telling that part of my story, but I didn't really, 
you know, I didn't think about why. And so I want to know, like, what have you found um, as a result, especially like at the university level with these stories and this consumption of these kind of narr narratives? Right. It's a very multi-level kind of problem and question, right? Because I think for a lot of students in the application process, if you are, you know, perusing a college website and the students that are featured or profiled are students who have these very traumatic narratives, you then begin to imitate that, whether it's intentional or not. We also have people, social actors in the actual K-12 space who tell their students, write about this. This is how you get in. Tell them you, you fell down and next thing you know, you were homeless or you were adopted. Tell that story. Show them that you deserve to, to get in. So also, there is this connection to trauma and pain as a signal of deservingness in a way where blackness is then being equated to some type of struggle, some type of overt struggle, because we all struggle, right? But this is very narrative portrayal of blackness that's, that various kind of social actors are telling young people that that's important to their overall story arch. So you have that piece. And then you have universities who, again, admit students and then you know have those very students talk to panels talk to um alumni donors because for them and particularly in, in the, my research that looks at uh states that have banned the use of race and emissions it's also how they show that they are committed to diversity right so they it's a hyper visibility of this particular narrative the most traumatic the most you know obscene in some cases because it says look this student, you know, was deported or was a refugee and then moved to Minneapolis and then, you know, walked barefoot across the board, you know, and it's like, look how diverse we are. We have these types of people here. We, you know, we have this type of student here. So I think there are so many levels to it and it becomes a cycle, right? Are we just, you know, repeating what we are told? Are our teachers, our high school counselors telling us this is what we need to do to get in? Are our peers who have already graduated from our high schools telling us this is what they did to get in? Are the nonprofits telling students, particularly low-income students, this is what you need, need to do to get in? And then are universities then blasting these students in brochures and pamphlets, mm -hmm. on websites, on, you know, talking to faculty, et cetera. So students then think, oh, this is the formula. So it becomes almost, this is the formula. And you'll see it all the time. I mean, people tweet about it, you know, I, you know, I told them that my dad went to jail, so, you know, and then I, I got in, or I'm about to sell my trauma to get this scholarship. It's like, also, whatever it takes, because we we trying to get in. We are trying to get in, mm -hmm. and we have been told that to get in means to sell some some trauma or to market our trauma in a way that is palatable to, to predominantly white and historically white institutions. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely feel like I, I can, I like literally see tweets, you know, like in my timeline, in my head of like, you know, about to write this application and what story do I tell them today? And right. so um, I, I love that you kind of share what's happening before, during and after this amplification of these stories. And then, uh, you know, us all kind of succumbing to the formula. And so what is that saying about diversity? What is that saying about um, institutions? Like, I don't, I, I, I kind of, so like I don't have I guess a well-formulated question but just like so what does that all mean when it comes to like students and the university um, doing better with diversity especially in the climate that we have created right now right so firstly I guess I want to start with the premise that the university itself is a racialized organization so essentially what that means is and this is according to a sociologist whose work I really appreciate named Victor Ray the university serves as a mechanism that continues to produce multi-level racial inequality. So essentially, the university itself is, is not only does it produce you know, inequality, it is racially segregating people. It is re reproducing status and resource inequality. And it unequally distributes resources to, to students, to faculty, et cetera. So the university itself is also perpetuating this. And I think it's incredibly important that as much as the students are perhaps the people narrating this, the, the student is a cog in this larger machine, which yep. is a, of the university, of social institutions. So at no point that I want to suggest that you know, students 
particularly black students doing what they need to do in a system at a, in a university in an organization that is continually historically discrim discriminated against, against them, excluded them. It is them trying to do what they can to gain access to a university. And because we have been socialized to think universities are critical to our social mobility, we are trying to get in there, right? So I saw to say that the university itself is it's really like this site in which a lot of this kind of anti-blackness is kind of perpetuated because there is this commitment to so, quote unquote diversity, and then it is articulated as, you know, we need people of color in, or, in order to make our institution diverse. However, that presumes that the university, the norm is whiteness, right? So what does it mean to say, in order to have diversity, we need y'all black folks, we need five of the Latinx people, we need at least one indigenous student. That is it, the assumption then is the university is a white institution, right? because the, the bodies that make it diverse are not white bodies. So I, I think there's a lot with this conversation about you know universities espousing diversity. And I think there's needs to be across universities, businesses, companies, there needs to be this larger in interrogation of what diversity is anyway, right? Because what does it mean to have various people represented without any type of systemic change to the institution itself, right? Without any systemic change about admissions processes or university leadership or university institutional makeup. Like I, I, I'm, the more I kind of read about what diversity is or what it isn't, I, I'm really not convinced that diversity is what we should be even aiming for because mm -hmm. that, that word, allows for universities and institutions to get away with having tokens mm -hmm. and singular representations of groups without making the institutional changes to disrupt the, the racism and the white supremacy that exists in those places to begin with. Yeah, so, so what's a better word? What's a better word than diversity? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there needs to be a, a commitment articulation and then a, an act of anti, anti-racism. So I think instead of just saying this blanket diversity, multiculturalism, pluralism, all the melting pots, all that language that we have that does not show a true commitment to anti-black anti racism or anti-racism, I think we should throw it out. I think there, we need to be more exact. We need to name exactly what we're trying to acknowledge. Otherwise, diversity, there'll be like diversity in thought, where we got three people who got black hair, three people who got blonde hair, Three people who got locks. Oh, she got an afro. Oh, her hair is straight divert. I mean, it, it allows universities to kind of get away with mm -hmm. it. And there is a particular challenge for, again, states like Michigan, California, Texas, states that have banned the use of race and admissions, because technically they can't consider race as a factor in college admissions processes. However, there are certainly opportunities for them to ensure that there are more particularly black students represented at their institutions that go beyond the, the factor, the, the types of mechanisms that they created. And essentially these schools are not, do not kind of have the representation of black students that they need because they don't want them. I get it. Cause the year that I graduated from high school was the year that Michigan got rid of affirmative action and right. I went out of state. Like my mom was like, let's go because clearly the state does not, you know, want you here. Um, cause I wanted to go to Michigan or Michigan. Mm -hmm. Actually, I really didn't care, but you know, I applied to both. Um, and I ended up down in North Carolina because like, then there was like, no, you know, there, that was a loss of funding and some other things, but I don't want to veer too far off. I just kind of remember that being a stark part of my own, my own story. Cause I wasn't, that was in the backdrop. So what are some, ways that we can kind of like especially right now right i think even academia is open to suggestions right they're considering and wanting to well, we'll say considering um and some are making an earnest effort to do better to kind of make this shift to be anti-racist and having academia be a um, no longer a racialized institution what do you think needs to happen as it relates to representation in the students and the faculty and leadership? Right. So firstly, there are a large percentage of states in this country who don't even have the percentage of Blacks 
college-going population kind of represented at their institution. So what I mean like that for a state like Michigan, mm -hmm. I think Michigan black folks are perhaps like 14% yeah. of the state population. The University of Michigan, which is a public university, which means it should serve the public, yeah. has about 4% of black students. So at minimum, you should have 14% black students, period, yeah. right? Also, I think a, a commitment, a true commitment, again, to anti-Black racism starts at every level of the institution, to your point. Mm -hmm. So firstly, we have students, we have Black students in these predominantly white and historically white spaces named after people who did not consider them human, right? So I think something that universities should commit to are changing names of buildings, stadiums, fields, named after after white supremacists and, and honor the legacy of the black alum, the indigenous people, particularly in places like Michigan and the Southwest where we had large indigenous populations. You know, what does it signal for a black student to attend an institution or walk halls with porches named after, you know, eugenicists and white supremacists who, who advocated for their enslavement? Mm -hmm. I think that is something that universities need to do. You know, I, it really doesn't make sense for, for you know, for universities to have these proclamations where the very buildings that they sit in that our students are educated and are, are, are then, you know, have the, the white eyes and the white gaze of white supremacists staring at them. So I think that's, that's one area. I also think that universities need to eliminate standardized testing, period. Standardized okay. testing does not assess anything worth, you know, of, of value. They extremely uh, benefit and privilege the experiences of the affluent and white people. They also do not assess, you know, performance. I think after like the first semester, which is not, a, that doesn't signify anything. Um, and then particularly in this time that we're in with COVID, I mean, the, the amount of disruption to everyone's lives and, and to have young people sit down to take standardized tests is ridiculous. So I think standardized testing is, a, is another huge barrier where all the data suggests that they continue to exclude low-income people, people who do not have access to resources for standardized test prep for um, you know, college-educated parents who are using certain words and, and they're able to enjoy certain experiences. All of those things, the, the data says we need to get rid of this. However, we still, you know, force young people to take that, to take standardized tests. Also, in thinking about the faculty, some institutions, and particularly the, the one that comes to mind is Emory University, implemented a cluster hiring. Yes. So cluster hiring, you know, is essentially when you kind of hire in a group of, of, of candidates, a pool of candidates who have, like, similar racial identities. In this case, we can hire in, you know, a group of black folks, which allows them to develop like synergy with their interests. And it also fosters collaboration, shared experiences and support networks. Mm -hmm. Because you'll see in various uh, faculty departments, there are departments, I mean, Michigan, we have three black faculty members in our sociology department. Michigan has a very large sociology department in comparison to other institutions. We have three and two have been here for about 20 years. They're, they're both tenured. Uh, but we and we just hire a new one for, who was a postdoc. So the fact that you know individuals we're getting a one black faculty member you know once every 25 years is a problem because when you come in by yourself and the only other black faculty member, if they exist, are tenured and 25 years older, you don't have a community. You don't have someone you can lean on. And we know academia can be a very difficult space. So cluster hiring is critical. And that is something that can also apply to the business space as well and the private sector. So thinking about how organizations can hire clusters of groups so they can have community, so they can have support. And I also think those types of, we've seen types of like bridge programs at various, you know, institutions where you come for a summer. Those programs do extremely well because the students are able to build community with one another, make friends, have support networks, get familiar with the institution. Those types of programs need to be like uh, instrumented on also on every single level, mm -hmm. right? This clustering hiring, I think is also extremely critical. Yeah, I really like that. Um, and I feel like that's a conversation I have all the time, you know, and I'm sure you do too, with like your friends in grad school. It's like, where are you going? Okay, well, I'm apply there too, you know, so we can kind of almost do our own cluster hiring because it is 
really critical um, for black faculty because they're typically like one, um, especially like in engineering, there's like, we got our first black woman this academic year. You know what I mean? In my, in my engineering school. We ended up getting two. They did a, cl- they did a cluster hire to an extent. <laughs> but the two were the first ever in the history of this entire program. I mean, like this entire department. So I, I, I absolutely, I think those are some really good, like you gave some small incremental changes with the level of like changing the name of buildings, of, of things. But I definitely wonder how universities are going to respond with their sponsors and individuals who give private donorship. I, I know we don't have to like go in that route, but I know that's like an immediate pushback. Like, oh, the donors are gonna not wanna give us money. Absolutely. I mean, I'm here again at the University of Michigan. We have a Stephen M. Ross. We the business school is named after Stephen M. Ross. We have hockey fields and other fields and spaces named after Stephen M. Ross. And I have black friends who are getting MBAs at the Ross School of Business. And he is one of, you know, he's he's a Trump. He, he supports Trump's, like, you know, candidacy. He's one of his biggest, you know, uh, he donates to Trump. He's a billionaire. So do they change the name to, to Stephen M. Ross Business School? Does Stephen M. Ross be like, okay, give me my, you know, $3 billion back? Though, I mean, if universities are, you know, about that life, as I like to say, then those are conversations that they need, they need to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, institutions even, they, when you interrogate and challenge even something like that, they are not even open to having a conversation. So even if you said, me, give, you know, us changing this name would mean that, you know, we can't educate you know, students in the Ross School of Business, at least have that conversation publicly. Like, engage with us in that point. Again, if you're committed to anti, uh, committed to eradicating, you know, uh, anti-Black racism, et cetera, you need to be able to come to the front of the congregation and, ha- and at least have that conversation because they, they don't even engage or, in, or uh, even engage students when we bring those types of, types of issues up, which means you are not truly committed to this cause. Yeah. frankly that that that's what that what that suggests for me so it is something that we need to interrogate frankly and then we have endowment money where of course not all endowment money you can use freely i recognize that as universities have funds to operate and you can't access certain funds i get that but don't get me started about how much you know our athletic coaches are paid and okay and, and, and what we can do and, and the, you know inflation of salaries of presidents and provosts and et cetera. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a difficult conversation, but I, I think we, we gotta, we gotta do what we have to do. I, I, I agree. And I, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of start to wrap up, but one thing I do want to know, you know, we're all about ha- having these conversations and them being action focused, action oriented. You gave some actions for the universities. I want to know what can we do? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm an HBCU alum, but I'm going to be alum, you know, from PWI when I'm done with, well, I already am, but I'm not giving that school any money. So where I'm coming, <laughs> this next school, you know, I'm going to graduate from, what can we do as Black alumni to challenge our universities to kind of make these changes and create a space that's more um, inclusive? You know, I know that's probably another word we probably should get rid of, but how can we do that and kind of help create that change we want to see? Right, that's a fantastic question. So universities, both private and public, have board of regents, board of governors, board of trustees, some iteration of a board, right? right? So those are the independent, uh, they're like the board format that helps to kind of govern the, the institutions. I want everyone to visit their university's website, listen, you know, and find out who the board of regents, trustees, board of governors are. Oftentimes, the board of regents and trustees, they are from the for-profit or private sector. Um, they tend to be very well accomplished. I just looked, University of Michigan has two black women who are incredibly accomplished. Find out where they work. See if, if there's an opportunity for alum to, to join those board of regents, board of governor, board of trustees, if not demand that we are in those spaces. Because what happens is it is often not the, the president who is making the strategic priorities of the institution, such as you know, how, you know, where money is going to be spent. You know, you hear a lot of the defunding of 
police departments in connection to universities, those conversations are happening on a much higher level with the board of trustees, the board of regions. So the, that I think that is a place where a lot of us as alum can start find out who those people are, what they represent, and then be, be you know engaged to figure out whether or not you can be a part of that 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 type of leadership. And if it's not currently possible, shake the table so you can be. I think we are in a great, there's a great opportunity for us to really get in there and, and, and completely restructure these uh, organizations and institutions. Yes, I'm like totally loving shake the table right now. Like it's just, <laughs> shake the table. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, expressions. Exactly. Um, I'm going to go into a couple of questions. Um, some, some, someone said they were a part of a DEI workshop and the speaker also felt that diversity was a noun and we should be working towards inclusion, which is a verb and not a destination. What do you think about that? That we should be working towards inclusion? Yeah. Inclusion of what? Okay. And you know, I, I, I so I understand it as, as language, but I mean, you have the diversity, equity, inclusion, the DEI committees, we have, you know, people are part of those organizations, but again, what DEI, and opportunities that people, often people who get it, are then opting into, it does not engage the folks who need to be woken up. It does not engage or kind of ex extend to the people who are contributing to anti-Blackness and, and who are racist or you know, espouse white supremacist values. Those people are often sep so separate from the conversation that it becomes a um, you know everyone is preaching to the choir at the at the table so i mean as much i, I need to know inclusion of whom and, and what are we trying to to include who are we trying to include before i can really uh kind of grapple what what exactly that means yeah okay i i like that answer and i, I kind of is it two-parter because i'm combining two questions from two different people yeah. one asks you know what um, what should a student, um, what should you tell a student to share in their story? And kind of an extra part that I really liked was, well, there's a power in owning your story, right? And so how does one do that and still make sure that they're being seen for their truth, for their truth and still admit it, right? So kind of a two-parter. Yeah, that's a very um, important question. And that's something that I engage with in my own work as someone who had a very difficult upbringing and as someone who's quite vocal in that upbringing and telling that story, I have made the decision to tell it in my own words and on my own terms. So I think the, the purpose is not to necessarily dissuade or discourage young people for telling a story that is honest and important to them. It's having the conversation with them to let them know, you tell this story now, you will have admissions officers or fellowship officers read this story, people who do not know you intimately, people you do not know at all. Once you get on campus, if you get that award, et cetera, they may profile that story. You may be tethered to that story. So just recognizing, having, just having the conversation so people know that that story may live beyond you and you have to feel, you have to be okay with that. So it is your right, particularly for Black folk, resilient, great. We have been through a lot, okay? So it's important that we own that story, right? But just know that it may take off, right? And you may not necessarily have control of it once you press submit. So that's what I would tell a young person. Yeah, and if I may, I would also argue that even though we, like, I think the thought that it's the formula, you don't have to... Um, you don't have to tell your story in order to get admitted, right, in that way. So that's something that I kind of think about um, as someone who, like, has really kind of shied away from that. I'm, like, already OD private, and then just kind of, I didn't even, like, again, I don't think I even articulated all of these thoughts, but the thought of, like, I don't want the story to go pat, live beyond beyond me um, or right. being bigger than, like, just Alante, you know, or Aya, the scholar, not with this whole story. So um, I just kind of wanted to offer that. Someone else asks, how do you encourage young students on navigating these institutions that have these systemic and systematic policies in place that have not allowed them to prosper or gain in areas that their non-Black counterparts have? 
Can you say that latter part again for me? Yeah. So um, how do you like help students navigate these institutions when they have policies in place that won't allow them to prosper or kind of make headway the way their their non-Black counterparts are, are able to do or they might have access to do? Right. So essentially, what does it mean to be a Black student attending a, a historically uh, white or predominantly white institution? Because frankly, these institutions at their start and origin were not created to serve us. I mean, we, we could talk about even the history of standardized tests and who they were trying to exclude Jewish people and then Black people from these institutions. I think what we then do, and as so many of us have had to do, we form community. So it is incredibly important that we stand in solidarity with our, our Black peers at these institutions, right? And then we find, I'm not going to use the word allies, but I'll use the word accomplices at our institutions, and these are Black faculty, or there are some non-Black faculty who get it, right i ain't gonna say well get it where you know we align with those people in order to to do what we can with what we have yeah by building community and coalition we can then create you know channels to be able to articulate and demand better you know systems right so i think we all can do like what we can as individuals i think it is unfortunate that so many Black students go to predominantly white and historically white institutions and then have to be social activists and, you know, tie themselves up to statues and go on hunger strikes while, they, you know, meanwhile, their white peers are studying and preparing for the tailgate and they literally have to, you know, demand that institutions have been around for hundreds of years to, to, to get it together. So I'll say that, again, you, you build coalition, you build community with the black folks at those institutions, because I think that is how I survived at, at Georgetown. That's how I survived at Cambridge. That's how I'm surviving here at Michigan. I'm sure Alante may have some type of coalition, some type of community that rides for her. And I think that's important because survival, frankly, is, is radical in its own right. And I think it's important to know that. Also, I mean, if you feel like you are constantly being confronted with a system or individual actors that are just not that you're not aligning it's okay to say I'm going someplace else as well right so this is not a uh, a recommendation to suffer in silence or to suffer if you feel that an institution is not supporting you and that you cannot find a community I mean you could be a rural you know Arkansas and you say there I don't even have black professors then it's okay to go someplace else as well Yes, I completely agree. I am not, I don't have no problem saying I'm out. Um, but I like everything else you said too. Yes, <laughs> I echo everything else too. Um, another question asked, and since we only have a couple minutes left, because still, we still have our last segment from the podcast, just kind of keep that in mind as we answer these few last questions. There are a lot of Black student athletes. Universities profit from their athletic ability, but they don't pay attention to their academics. And so how can we make sure that these student athletes are best prepared in maximizing that educational opportunity so they're prepared for the next step in their life? So is the question asking, does the question ask that the, is saying that Black students don't uh, pay attention to their own academics or the, the university and the coaches? It's, it's, I'm seeing it, and uh, Chelsea, tell me if I'm interpreting it correctly, but it's universities, they, they don't pay attention to the academics for those students. Ooh. Oh, universities. Yeah. Hmm. This is a, uh, a very large and um, coded question because I do not think that universities are, have any intention on educating their student athletes. I, I think they see their student athletes as money makers. These are particularly in the Division I mm -hmm. uh, athletic conferences, the big football schools, the Arbans, the, the big basketball schools, etc. 
it's, it's really hard to have a, a straight answer with this one because I, I think it is so complicated. And I think, frankly, that type of kind of approach to understanding, you know, whether student athletes are educated actually starts before uh, college because you have young people who are conditioned to put their, their self-value and their athletic prowess and ability. And when you tell someone, because they're tall, they're, you know, six foot five in a sixth grade, that, you know, they're going to be a star athlete. And then you tell them again, when they're in a ninth grade, that they're, you know, going to, you know, the top, you know, to do or wherever the top basketball school is. And that is how that they're socialized. It also becomes an internalized process of saying, like, I am a, that is my identity. I'm going to school because y'all told me I got to, but I'm not here. That's not, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to play for you. So I think it is a much kind of deeper question. Um, I, I do think universities should do a, a lot better to provide support. But again, they are not, from my personal experience, those young people are not on campus to be, to be students. Yeah. They're there to, to be athletes. So I, 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 I struggle with providing an answer that will really address that, that question because it is very complicated. Right. That's real. That's I, I totally get it. And I'm going to just like really quickly plug one episode I already did with a football player who's now getting his PhD, um, Trawan. It's episode 103. And he's talking about never being taken seriously in the classroom because he was a student athlete. And I think it's a really great story about how universities treat their black male student athletes. Um, and that's what he's focusing his energy on. So there are people who do the work. You know, I, you don't have to be a, a pro in everything. Right. Yeah. So there are people who do that work. Um, let's see. There are a couple other questions. Um, one was, um, are there any resources you suggest that we can share with universities to show them what they should be considering? And so what I think here, I know you were talking about like the board of regents or the board of directors, us as alumni or current students, what kind of information we can't just go in there. Like we think you should change the name of this building or we think you should do these things. What type of resources or backup information should we have to make our case? Right. So, I mean, I have, there, there are several kind of resources that I think it will be important. So because they are universities, I think they will probably be very data driven and also just very kind of scholarly driven. So one is actually, there's some, some literature that kind of talks about kind of diversity and what that means. One is actually this book. That I have a list of things, actually. I created lists for this conversation that I think we can share out. But this is one book called The, the Diversity Bargain, which I think is uh, incredibly insightful about kind of diversifying institutions and what that means. Um, also, I think, I, so I have a, some, some articles uh, about the cluster hiring, particularly the one about uh, Emory and how they were able to get more racialized minorities uh, as faculty members. So. If, it, if it's okay, I, I will send those lists to Elante and then we can disseminate them in a, in a, uh, in a like consolidate it in a way that will, you know, I could rattle off some, um, but I think it would be more helpful if, if I sent her a longer list that you all can then look at on your own. Yes, yeah, so we'll provide that in the action um, guide and those who are listening, I will create like a link or something we'll figure it out for you all to get it as well those who listen to the podcast okay I the last question which I really love is when are you starting your own university when am I starting my own university okay so first I had to get this PhD y'all so when I am when I am Dr. Waller Bay the possibilities are endless mm -hmm. universities are extremely expensive but um, I feel like if you're about that life then you're gonna do it so we will see. I mean, I, I, I'm invested in education, you know, through and through. So I don't know when exactly, but I am open to that. So I don't know if you asked that question, but whoever asked that, thank you for thinking of me in that, in that way. Yes, yes. I will show you and ask that question. Um, so this last question was about um, how to advise students, their, their, your students about writing personal stories. We actually kind of answered that like one of the first questions. So um, the beautiful thing is you can catch the replay if you missed um, Aya's answer. So Aya, I, every episode of Black and in Grad School, we have this segment called Lessons from the Track. And so it's finding motivation from rap music, 
people think that all you can do is certain activities, but there's a lot of motivation from them. So I, I want to know what is your lesson from the trap about um, our conversation today? What? Okay. About our conversation. So well, you have prepared. <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, the song that I have been listening to, the song that motivates me is J-Rock's Win. Mm, Uh, You know, get out the way, get out the way, get out. So, and he says, you either with me or you against me. So that's kind of how I feel about these universities, frankly. You either with us or you against us. So you're either about this life and you're committed to eradicating, you know, anti-Black racism and reducing Black suffering, or you are... Uh, committed to extending and continuing and reproducing the status quo, which has gotten us nowhere. So you either went with us or you're against us. So J-Rock Wind is like my theme song and how I feel about this conversation. I love it. That's perfect lesson from the trap for our conversation. I, I want to thank you so much, y'all. Let's throw some hand claps in the chat to thank Aya for her contributions, for all of the amazing work she's doing and will do. Um, we are so grateful for you. Tell us how we can follow you or connect with you on social media. Right. So you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Aya underscore underscore Marie. Um, you can, you know, visit my website, ayawalladay.com. And yeah, those are some of the, the platforms. I recently started a Medium blog where I, I will be publishing some more of, you know, my non-academic writing. So you know, you can follow me there. Yeah, and I'm just so happy to, to be a part of this conversation, to support Juneteenth Week. This is so dope. So thank you all, the organizers, for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Black and in Grad School. For more content to help you on your grad school journey, check out blackandgradschool.com. That's B-L-K-I-N gradschool.com. Love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Until next time.